Well, good morning again. I ask you, to, if you will, to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. This morning we'll be looking together, verses 9 through 25. Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 25. Really thankful for Pastor Nathan preaching for us last week and did such a terrific job with our passage there as we began chapter 8 looking at Philip's going into Samaria, so really thankful for him, and I encourage you to kind of, we got so much going on in the life of our church, kind of put in your mind March 6, March 6, Pastor Nathan will be doing a seminar that Sunday afternoon that will uh, kind of give us a taste of what the Institute is for, and just to kind of say that the Institute is for everyone as he leads out, so we would love for you to, to consider that and be there for that, looking forward to what he is doing there. Also, just a reminder, this evening is an important part of the life of our church. Regularly, we get together on a Sunday evening, all of us together, to celebrate the Lord's Supper. This evening, we will do just that. At 5 o'clock, we'll be gathering together. All of us, whether you attend whichever service you do in the morning, we'll all gather together in the afternoon at 5 o'clock to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. It's a very important part of the life of our church as we do what God has commanded us to do, as we look to the cross, and as we are thankful for Christ. That service this evening will be in our newly renovated fellowship hall. We were just in there for the first service, and it was packed, standing room only, bringing out chairs. And so God has been gracious to there, so we want to be in there this evening, worship together, pray, thank God for what he is doing in the life of our church. It'll be in there. And I don't know what any of y'all are thinking about a football game that's not on God's calendar at all. And so I don't have any idea what y'all are talking about, but I will tell you we'll be done about 5.50, 5.55 or so. So... Just to let you know that. Looking at our passage this morning, I was reminded of the fact that the world is full of counterfeits. There's awful, beautiful things in the world, but the world is also full of counterfeits. I learned this first on my very first youth trip in 1987, back when it was the youth ministry, not the student ministry. We had gone to Charleston, and my parents, my first trip, my mom and dad had given me $30. I was rich. And I was looking for a way to spend it. Sure enough, we went down there a little early and we went to the market in downtown Charleston. And so I was there, downtown Charleston, back in those days for a young kid like me in middle school, it was the time where Coca-Cola gear was really in style. You had t-shirts, you had shirts, sweatshirts, glasses, all of it said Coca-Cola and for some reason that was cool. I never did get things like that. My mom just showed up with some clothes and threw them at me and told me to wear them. So I was there thinking, now I got 30 bucks. I don't need to eat this week. I need this Coca-Cola gear. And so I did. I bought me a T-shirt and I bought me a pair of sunglasses. I thought I'd arrived only to learn as I got back getting ready for camp. We were going in to have our big group time. I put on my shirt. I put on my glasses in Charleston. And my roommate looked at me and said, something looks off there. I said, really, what is it? And I looked down and sure enough, I hadn't noticed until that point that my shirt said Coca-Cola. <laughs> oh, man, this isn't good. At least I got my glasses. I took them off, and sure enough, Caca-Cola. <laughs> I had been had 
by cheap imitations and counterfeits. And while that story's funny right now, it wasn't funny to me then. I spent my money on counterfeits and I wasn't able to eat for the rest of the week. And what we look at in our life is there is a great danger of counterfeits. A great danger of counterfeits. And in reality, it's not funny. In fact, this danger is quite real and the effects can be damning to us. Especially when it comes to our faith. Especially when it comes to our faith. The early church here in Acts chapter 8 is growing. We've seen this. In spite of, of all the difficulty, in spite of the persecution, it's growing and its growth goes even into Samaria. We see the gospel moving now even into Samaria as we talked about last week. And as chapter 8, verse 8 said, there was much joy in that city. There is excitement and much joy with the growth of the gospel. But even, even in the face of this excitement and much joy, as we've seen over and over again, there is much adversity. Seen most clearly in the death of Stephen, the adversity continues. But the gospel continues. It continues into Samaria. In our passage, however, as the gospel continues with joy and excitement, we are introduced to something that will challenge the church from Acts chapter 8 all the way until today. In fact, I believe what we're introduced here in Acts chapter 8 oftentimes is quite more dangerous than what happened to Stephen at his stoning. It's more dangerous even for the church as we gather here today to think that there may be someone in this room that believes they have faith, but their faith is a counterfeit. That's the challenge. That's the challenge here today to identify counterfeit faith so that it does not send us to an eternal hell. Salvation, we believe, comes by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. We say this, salvation is by faith alone. And that's a glorious gospel for us, not by works. It's not anything we can do. It's not anything we can accomplish on our own. Not by works, but by faith. And that's it. And if salvation comes by faith alone, then how important is it that every one of us make sure that our faith is genuine, that it's real, that it's true, not Counterfeit. Our passage, hopefully this morning, will help us with this as we are introduced to a man named Simon. Let's read together Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 9 through the end of the chapter. Luke writes, But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed and after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. 
Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Help us today by your spirit to apply your word to our hearts. Father, create in us a clean heart so that we may honor you and glorify you and that our faith may be genuine. And if anyone is here today, If anyone is here today, Father, and they may believe that their faith is not genuine, may today they find a real and true faith, all resting in Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray in his name. Amen. As we look to our passage, we'll see the continuing of the advancement of the gospel. Of course, that's what the book of Acts is all about. And we see it here through the work of Philip, one of the deacons chosen in chapter 6. Philip here in the first part of our passage, starting in verse 9, we see the context being set of Philip proclaiming the gospel over against Simon, the one who was the magician, who was, who was speaking another power. After that context is set, we're met really with, with two questions that arise. The first is the coming of the Spirit amongst the Samaritans, and the second is the so-called faith of Simon. And hopefully, hopefully through this, we'll understand not only the history of redemption and how God redeems those who were Samaritans and this comes about, but we'll also be able to distinguish faith from its counterfeits. A very important clue to the interpretation of our passage this morning is first found there in the very first word. You get to chapter 8, verse 8. So there was much joy in that city. So the gospel's going forward. People are coming to faith. There's much joy in that city, but there was a man named Simon. That but there is introducing something new to us. There's this opposition that is coming. The gospel is advancing, but. We, we see this, as I've said, and, and I must point it out again, the, the gospel is advancing. In fact, God's plan, the Father's plan is moving forward in spite of great persecution, in spite of great difficulty or adversity. You see, when Jesus left, ascended into heaven, he told his disciples, you will be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth, right? And so ultimately we see Philip is doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. The gospel is advancing even into Samaria. But as the gospel advances, we always understand that it will be opposed. In fact, I don't know of a time when the gospel advances in such a way that there is not opposition to the gospel. God's work does not include the ease of a red carpet. It's not rolled out for us as if this is simple or easy. God's work is always going to be faced with opposition because there's one out there trying to stop it. Not everything 
is perfect in Samaria. In fact, the challenge that we face here in Acts chapter 8, when they get into Samaria and the gospel advances, this challenge is quite different from the other challenges. I would even say this challenge is far more dangerous to us this morning, as I said before. Surely you, you may think, Josh, I don't want to be stoned as Stephen's stone. Uh, surely I don't want that to happen. But maybe it would be better for us of real faith to be stoned than to go through life thinking we have faith only to find out we don't when it's too late. And here, this challenge comes up, quite different than before, but all real to the church. Simon was a magician, and he was good. In fact, he was great if you ask him, right? He even says this. He says he, was say, he kept saying of himself, saying that he himself was somebody great. He was a great magician, good at what he does, known by everyone, a celebrity in Samaria. Magic, as we understand it in this day and age, magic was practiced to heal the sick, physical blessing or cursing. If you wanted to curse someone, you go to the magician. They would use all sorts of things uh, like incantations, potions, magical objects. They would do signs and wonders to prove the effect of their curses or their blessings. They would even speak to demons, the scripture tells us later, in order to prove these things. This was a living for Simon. This is how he made his living. He would, he would have to show his power as a magician so that others would come to him, give him money, so he, he can then bless or curse them, use his magic. It was a living for him. He made money off of this. And Simon had earned a great reputation. From the least to the greatest, they paid attention to him, the text says. In fact, they would even say this this is the power of God that is called great. They even ascribed to Simon the power of God as they saw his work and how strong of a magician he was. Now understand as we look to this passage, this is not like my grandma not letting me watch Bewitched. This is, this is not the same as Aunt B falling for Colonel Harvey's Indian elixir. We, we, we joke about those things and we find that funny because we recognize what, what those things are. But here, later in Acts, as the Apostle Paul is confronted with another magician, he says that that magician is the son of the devil. And in fact, this is the devil's work. And ultimately, this power is on display in this way. The devil, the devil is looking to confuse and deceive others by his power and his strength. And this magic that is used is for that very thing. It was to be deceptive. The devil, by the way, still uses magic and superstition to distrust people or distract people from the real power of God. If we can find some other way to explain some things, then by all means, the devil wants you to be distracted by the, from the power of God to think that this was conjured up in some other way, in some other shape, some other form. I, I was asked the other day, and I'm not going to say it was at this church, but it wasn't too long ago. Somebody came up to me and asked me, what is your sign, Pastor? I'm going to go ahead and tell you, don't ever ask me that. First of all, I got no idea what you're talking about. Second of all, if that has to do with something like the horoscope or something like that, then that's the devil's work. That's what my grandma taught me. 
What I mean is, is there's some sort of distraction that we have. We try to figure out what the future looks like. We're trying to figure out what, what we can hold on to, what, what's dear or precious to us. We're trying to find some peace of mind that tomorrow's going to be okay. When in reality, the devil distracts us into this place and that place, trusting in this thing and that thing, and that's the work of the magician. That's the work of the magician. And while the devil's power is real, and oftentimes very, unfortunately, effective, it is only a cheap imitation of the power of God. The hiss of the snake cannot quiet the roar of the lion, if you know what I mean. Christianity, my friends, the power of God and Christianity is the antidote to magic and superstition. We're not calling to trust in something that is, that is deceptive or wrong or evil. We're calling you to trust in the true power of God in Christ Jesus, his son. And while Simon has the town in his hands, really, they're all listening to him and following to him, something changes when Philip shows up. Philip shows up and setting the stage here, he is preaching a greater message, a more powerful message. Simon had proclaimed himself. He said of himself he was somebody great. Philip comes in and he proclaims the good news of a greater kingdom, not of this world, but of the name of Jesus Christ, the kingdom that is Christ. He proclaims that. And ultimately, Simon recognizes as he sees the work Philip's doing with the message, Philip proclaims that he has no power against this message. And even here it says, as many as Philip preached this good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus, they were baptized, men and women, even Simon himself, verse 13, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Many come to believe. Simon proclaimed the good news of a greater kingdom in the name of Jesus Christ. Many came to believe and were baptized, even Simon itself, himself, it tells us in verse 13. News travels back to Jerusalem. Understand that Philip was no rogue evangelist. He hadn't just taken off to Samaria on his own. He was sent by the church, and as he has uh, seen people come to faith in Samaria, he sends news back to, to the church in Jerusalem, to the apostles there, and lets them know, hey, it's happening. The apostles there decide, the church there decides, they'll send Peter and John over to see what is going on. Most likely, the church had sent Philip. Now Philip sends for the apostles. Come and see what is happening. And so the text tells us Peter and John come down. They pray for them that they may receive the Holy Spirit. And in this lies the first question of our passage then. As Peter and John come, and the idea that they will lay hands on these, even though they have believed and been baptized in the name of Jesus, they will lay hands so that they can receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, Samaritans needed to receive the Holy Spirit because he had not yet been given to them. They'd only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, this is not an odd situation, by the way. We see this in Acts chapter 2. We see it here. We'll see it with the Gentiles. This episode is called the Samaritan Pentecost. We'll see again the Gentile Pentecost. As the gospel moves in the history of salvation, we see this event verifying that God is speaking and working even amongst the Samaritans. This becomes the blessing of God as the apostles come. And the apostles come for, for two main reasons. The apostles want to make sure that this is truly the work of God. 
They're convinced, they want to be convinced of this Samaritan conversion. This is no small thing. Remember the woman at the well when Jesus came to him, she said, uh, the Samaritan woman, she said, now your ancestors tell us that you worship on the mountain in Jerusalem, but ours tell us we worship on this mountain here. Which one is it? That was her question of Christ. And Jesus says, ma'am, it's those who worship spirit and in truth. Well, now, now Philip proclaims this gospel of a new kingdom, not on the mountain of Jerusalem, not on the mountain of Samaria, but in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what he proclaims. This is where he's found. And so here these apostles come to verify that this is true, that this kingdom of God is advancing and spreading outside of Jerusalem and even into Samaria. And how ironic is it that John shows up? Because if you remember Back in Luke chapter 9, when Jesus preached in Samaria and the whole village rejected him, John walked up to Jesus and said, hey, you want me to call fire down and burn them all? John was angry at the Samaritans rejecting him. He wanted to burn them down, but now it is John who's coming to see the Spirit of God at work in the Samaritans and the gospel advancing there. Verifying this work is true and of God, the apostles come. But not only that, not only that, the Samaritans needed to understand what was happening as well. While the apostles needed to know what was happening, the Samaritans wanted to understand that God, this, this movement that there, this kingdom of God is connected to the church in Jerusalem and how Jesus established that church and the apostles are the foundation, laying that foundation for the church. The Samaritans need to know you are a greater part of a greater movement that's already started in Jerusalem and now it's advancing here. This is the work of Christ that will reach the uttermost parts of the world. And in this sense then, Acts chapter 8 and here in this passage is not establishing a normative practice for the church in all ages. We know as the gospel moves forward and the Spirit comes in, this, in, in the first Pentecost, the Samaritan Pentecost, the Gentile Pentecost, but then from there, anytime the Spirit of God comes, people's hearts are changed toward him, they believe in him, and the Spirit dwells within them at that moment. But in the history of salvation... We see the work of God proving himself to be true. The Samaritans believe. In this, we know that God breaks down whatever barriers there. John wanted them burned. The Samaritans were, were the half-breeds, as the Jew said. Surely these people weren't, weren't good enough to hear the gospel, but here we have the confirmation that the gospel is for all people. It's for all people. But this moment where the apostles come and lay hands on these new believers in Samaria so that they would receive the Spirit also brings up another situation that we mentioned. As hands were laid on those who believed to receive the Spirit, and they did, our attention is drawn back to Simon again. Simon, in verse 18, when he saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, surely, when Philip baptizes Simon, back up there in verse 13, Simon even continues with him. When Philip baptized him there, there's no reason for us to doubt his conversion. There's no reason for us, even for Philip to doubt it. It was seemingly true. It seemed right to believe it was true. But now as the apostles come and the Spirit is coming through the laying on of hands, his request to pay money for the Holy Spirit is met with a very sharp rebuke from Peter. In fact, Peter, in only a way Peter can, says, may your silver perish with you. 
because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money? You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Peter's response to the request of Simon leaves little room to wonder what Peter thought about Simon. His request, Simon's request, is on display here as one that recognizes he does not truly understand what has been preached to him. He does not truly know the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he does not understand this kingdom or its power. Peter says, you have no part or lot in this matter. In fact, your heart is wicked, and you must repent. Now, this leaves us with a problem, a problem, as I said, that has plagued us from Acts chapter 8 even to today, what Adrian Rogers called the unbelieving believer. The idea here is simple. It looks like Simon believes. It even says he does. He's even baptized. He continues with Philip. What I mean by that or what I understand that to be saying is that he's listening to Philip. In other words, he's showing up to Sunday school every week. He walked the aisle. He took the hand. He followed in the waters of baptism. And he's even continuing by checking off that box of going and attending every single week as he continues with Philip. But when Peter and John come, something terrible is on display. Maybe he walked the aisle. Maybe he was. Surely he was even baptized. But it becomes clear that he has no part in the gospel. And his heart is not turned toward God. Now hear me when I say this. As pastor of this church, as someone, a shepherd, considered the under-shepherd of this flock, I don't want anyone in this room to be like this. In fact, it terrifies me. It terrifies me to believe that some could profess faith in their whole life but get to the end only to find out that faith was not real, it was counterfeit. So how can we learn something from this? What can we learn from this? No counterfeit faith in here, only genuine. What does genuine faith look like? First, true or genuine faith is a matter of the heart. In other words, it is inward, not outward. Here he says this, he says this to Simon, may your silver perish. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. First and foremost, True, genuine faith begins in the heart. It is inward, not outward. And here's the problem. Jeremiah tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things. In other words, it, it, your heart can deceive you as to what it is and where its treasure is and where, where its goals are and what it loves. It can deceive you. This, therefore, we have to have a new heart. Jesus tells us in Mark chapter 7 that it's not the circumstances of your life that are evil or cause you to do sin. It is out of the heart of man that evil things come. It's out of your own heart that wickedness comes. And so ultimately what we need is we need a new heart before God. Upon your placing faith in Christ, he gives you just that. 
In fact, that's the, the illustration that the scripture uses that you become a believer is he takes out an old heart of stone that cannot receive or know the truth and he replaces it with a heart of flesh. He gives you a new heart by the spirit. This is why David even cries out, create in me a clean heart, O God. He knew, he knew at the, very, at the very center of who he was, he must have a heart that is seeking to follow after God himself. And what does a new heart do for us? A new heart changes our affections. It changes what we love. A new heart turns us from, from loving our sin and our sinful ways to loving a Savior who died for us. To not only loving that Savior, but loving his word. And not only loving his word, but loving one another, loving us as brothers. That new heart must be changed in our life to change our affections toward Christ. We can quite often counterfeit the outward signs, can't we? We are experts at hypocrisy. We try in every way to hide some things so that others may not see it, and we know the games to play. This is a fear of mine, even with my own children who've been raised up in church. The last thing I want for them to do is learn how to mimic or counterfeit believing and trusting in Christ. And the last thing I want from any of you is the same. The only way to stop that is to call upon the Lord to change your heart. Say, God, give me a new heart. Make my affections toward you. Submit your heart and your life to Christ. That he becomes your love and not anything else. Simon here was loving his notoriety. He was loving his fame. And he would do whatever it takes to get more of it so that he can have it. When he saw this power that came along, he said, give me that because that's better than what I was doing. He wanted more of it. And that's on display when he says, can I buy it from you? But not only do we have to have a new heart, a true and genuine faith is selfless, not selfish. True and genuine faith is selfless, not selfish. Simon, as I said, was wanting something for himself. What can this do for me? This was a cost-benefit analysis for Simon. He was there in Samaria. Everyone was coming to him. From the least to the greatest, they saw his great work. He was great in their sight. Yet here comes Philip. And Philip is doing greater things, more wonderful things, more powerful things. He's proclaiming not himself, but the gospel of Jesus Christ. And a new kingdom has come. And Simon knows unless he gets on board with that, his very career is on the line. And so he's looking here, this cost-benefit analysis. Let me give you the money I have so you can give me that so I can get back to making more money. We must admit we have a tendency toward this. We have a tendency to come to Jesus what he would offer us, what he gives us. Now you say, Josh, isn't that it? Didn't he offer us life and salvation? Surely. But oftentimes that's not what we want. What we want is to get out of jail free card, Right? What we desire is what the old preacher just said is fire insurance. I don't want to go there. I don't want hell as my home, so I'll come on my terms. I'll negotiate my contract with the Lord. I'll find out how I feel comfortable to come to him. And what happens is ultimately when we think we can come on our terms to the Lord, then we misunderstand his power and his position. We don't get to negotiate the contract to see what it is he can offer us. 
We say like the Apostle Paul, not I, but Christ in me. And though I am crucified with Christ, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. We scream out like Jesus did there in the garden, not my will, but your will be done, Lord. That's the only way we come. We learn that we give of ourselves completely unto Christ. True faith is trusting him with everything we have, not just not just the little things or even that one thing, but trusting him with even our life, even our career, even the money we make. We trust the Lord with all of it. That's what true faith looks like. Selfless, not selfish. And hopefully that's you. Hopefully you trust the Lord with everything. When you trust the Lord with everything, one who truly has genuine faith can say, I don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough worry in itself. But I seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything else is mine. True and genuine faith not only is selfless, not selfish, but it acknowledges sin and repents. Not just the consequences of sin. You see, that's what happens with Simon. Peter says, repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours. Faith and repentance go hand in hand. It's like breathing in and breathing out. It's like two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. And ultimately what we see here is as Simon comes and he asks to give money so he can get the Spirit, Peter says to him, you need to repent. You need to repent of this wickedness of your heart, he says, and pray to the Lord that he'll forgive you, if possible, to pull you out of this. True repentance is not one that just simply is trying to avoid or move away from the consequences of our sin. True repentance recognizes not just that we have sinned, but that we are sinners. And that standing before God, he can justly and rightly condemn us because of our sin. How often are we just upset at getting caught? Simon is here. Simon answers after he tells him, repent and pray for yourself. Repent and pray to the Lord, he says. Simon says, pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Lord, hey, how about you pray for me? You got that power. You've seen those things. You've, you pray for me so that this won't happen to me, what you've said. Can we understand how that's not true Repentance. That's not truly looking at God and recognizing your sinfulness and trying to turn away because when we come face to face with Jesus Christ, we truly are sorry for our sin. You cannot see Christ and consider your sin to be indifferent. You cannot see him on the cross and consider your sin to be small. You cannot see him on the cross and consider your sin to be just okay or not too much. When you see him on the cross from the smallest to the greatest, you recognize that your sins can condemn you forever. And unless you repent of them and turn to Christ, then you have no part of him. When we come face to face with Jesus, we recognize it's not just that we've sinned, but that we are sinners. It's not just that we got caught, it's that we are guilty. And we, as guilty sinners, must repent or perish. A true and genuine faith is one that has repented, seen Christ and turned from the sin to trust in him. A true and genuine faith rests in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And when I say finished, I don't just mean finished, I mean finished and ongoing work of Jesus Christ. 
It rests in the fact that he's the one that died for me on the cross, that he's the one that lived the perfect life that I could not live. He's the one that went to the cross, and he who knew no sin became sin so that I may have eternal life. And we recognize that all of that is true because he rose again on the third day. He is now seated in the heavenly places. They're interceding on my behalf. What he has done for me and what he continues to do for me is the only thing that can save me, and it's the only thing worth trusting in. That's where our faith must be found. Found in the finished person and work of Jesus Christ. Simon believed he needed something extra. Whether it's notoriety or fame or whatever it was, the Spirit would validate him if he he could just have a piece of it. He wanted these things. He wasn't trusting and resting in Christ. He thinks that what it could offer him could make him even more famous, if you will. But nothing else can anchor our faith down other than the finished work of Jesus Christ. Nothing else can anchor our faith so that it is unmovable other than the finished work of Jesus Christ. The great mistake of many is that you don't put your faith in Christ, you put your faith in your faith. And when you put your faith in your faith, it's based on feeling. It's based on how you feel that day. It's based on what emotion you may have. And you think, well, I'm not a very good believer. I'm not a very good... All of those things disappear when we put our faith in Christ and we recognize, we recognize that it's Christ who holds me, not myself. It's Christ who does not move. It's Christ who does not change. And my emotions may go this way and that way. I'm anchored in the finished work of Christ. Do not put your faith in your faith. Put your faith in Christ Jesus, the Lord. A faith that is genuine is one that rests in Jesus, repents of sins, lives a selfless life, life, all from a changed heart. And how dangerous is this? I'm not shy to tell you that I really do in some ways, struggle with this passage in Matthew chapter 7. Here as a pastor, one who is responsible to proclaim the word of God to you every week, to lead a church that is teaching you and growing you in the word of Christ, it is my great fear that some of you may get to heaven and be shocked. And and, and the reason I say this is because it's right here in the scriptures. My job, I say this to all the way, from from the oldest to the youngest, my job is to get you ready to die. And what I mean by that is get you ready to meet your Savior face to face. Prepare you for that day. And Jesus himself says in Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. My goodness, I do not want to hear, I don't want any of you to hear that. So the only thing I can do is continue as we as pastors and leaders here continue to preach the true word of God and to call you to true faith, not a counterfeit faith, but a true faith and ask you, ask you even today to call upon the spirit of God to show you that your faith is genuine and true, not counterfeit. If you're trusting in Jesus alone, if you're seeking a a selfless, following of him, if you've repented of your sins and repenting every single day. 
if your heart is prone and turned toward him, to love him, to follow him, and to love his people, love his word, then praise God. But if not, it's quite possible your faith is counterfeit. And I don't want you to leave here today without confidence that you have a real and genuine faith. My prayer is that the Spirit would work in each and every one of our hearts for that end even now. May none of us here depart from me. I never knew you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. It is true. God, I pray that your Spirit would work even now to expose our own hearts as to whether or not our faith in you is genuine or counterfeit. And God, if anyone is here today and they recognize that they have a faith that is is not genuine, that's not true, not real, God, today would be the day they would deal with that, that they would call upon you, that you would change their hearts, that they would turn toward Christ, they would give their life, all of it, to him. It is surrender in that way, even now. God, change hearts in this place. All for your glory and all for your name we pray. I do not want to assume that everyone in this room has a true and genuine faith. What I do want to say is that everyone in this room must look to their own heart. Ask the Lord to show you, teach you, to verify in your own heart and soul today that you truly love him and you're truly following him. I'll be standing at the front if anyone would love to come and speak to me. We would love to have you as we stand together and sing. Let's do that.